Hello and welcome back to part five of the expert guide to conspiracy theories from the Conversations Ant Hill podcast. I'm Annabelle Bly. I'm recording this from my makeshift lockdown studio at home, so sorry the sound quality is not quite what you're used to. If you've listened to any of the other parts of this series, it is pretty clear that conspiracy theories can be dangerous. Yes, many are entertaining, but often what starts off as a bit of fun can turn sour quite quickly. Even if it's laughing about the idea that Rihanna or Katy Perry are part of the Illuminati. In this episode, we are going to delve into some of the psychology behind what makes conspiracy theories dangerous. We'll also explore the relationship between conspiracy theories and the radicalization of extremists. And we find out the best ways to talk to people who believe in conspiracy theories. Once again, I'll be speaking to a mix of academic experts. All are part of the Comparative Analysis of Conspiracy Theories Research Network, funded by the EU's Cooperation in Science and Technology. Cost. I'm Stephen Lewandowski. I'm a professor of cognitive science at the University of Bristol, and my research mainly deals with all forms of misinformation, disinformation, fake news, and conspiracy theories. Steve Lewandowski has written a number of articles for the conversation over the years. You can check out his back catalogue on the website. I wanted to speak to him because I knew he researched conspiracy theories about climate change being made up. And I also knew that he'd been on the receiving end of a lot of abuse from people who subscribe to this conspiracy theory. I became interested in conspiracy theories because when I started studying why people reject climate change and climate science, uh, it became apparent to me that a lot of the rhetoric on the internet that is rejecting climate change involves conspiratorial themes. There are people there, you know, being very concerned about the world government or the United Nations. And and whenever people mention terms like that, then my sort of detectors go up and I figure, aha, I wonder if there is a conspiracy theorist afoot. And sure enough, I then ran a couple of studies and published uh, two papers showing that there is an association between people who endorse conspiracy theories and who are rejecting climate change. And that's been confirmed now any number of times by other researchers and there is, you know, really no doubt in my mind that there is an association between those two things. And um, could you just describe what that association looks like? What makes this a conspiracy theory? That's a very good question because the answer is pretty nuanced. Uh, on the one hand, what we can do is we can measure people's belief in a, in a whole bunch of conspiracy theory. Was JFK assassinated by the CIA? Was Princess Diana murdered by MI5? You know, there's all these conspiracy theories out there. And we find that people who endorse those theories or who, who don't fully reject them, who even allow for these theories to be true, they tend to be more likely to say, well, I don't believe that climate change is happening or I don't believe that humans are causing it. So there is that association. Steve says the correlation is significant and reliable, with lots of studies showing it over and over again. And it relates to the phenomena that we heard about in part two of this series, that if someone believes in one conspiracy theory, they often believe in others as well. 
Psychologists call this dispositional conspiracy theorizing. But what's interesting is that if you look at the rhetoric on the internet, the prevalence of conspiracy theorizing in the context of climate change is much, much greater than is suggested by this modest association between dispositional conspiracy theorizing and rejecting climate change. And so what I've done more recently is to show that there's another way in which people invoke conspiracy theories. And that's not because they're conspiracy theorists in the classical sense, but because they use an appeal to a conspiracy as a rhetorical tool to get rid of inconvenient science. What do you mean by inconvenient science? Well, this is where it gets to be really interesting because we know from a large number of studies that the primary driver of climate denial is people's personal worldview or ideology. I can ask people four questions about the free market and if their responses tell me that this particular person is committed to free markets, to unregulated free enterprise, then I have a very good idea that they will also be denying climate change. The association between those two variables is immense. It is very strong. And it's also understandable because, of course, to deal with climate change, what we have to do is we either have to introduce a tax or regulations or legislation. We have to interfere with how the economy is being run at the moment. And for some people who are committed to this idea of free markets, that is emotionally incredibly challenging. And it is those people who find the science that underlies climate change extremely inconvenient. And it is those people that if you push them into explaining why they think that all the scientists agree on climate change, those people will then appeal to a conspiracy among climate scientists. So they will say things like, oh, they're in it for the money, or the government is telling them to do it, or they're all having a political agenda, etc., etc. So all these conspiratorial things come to the fore if you ask those people to explain why the scientists agree on climate change. Steve says it's definitely not the case that everyone who doubts climate science is a conspiracy theorist. But pretty much everybody who is a committed supporter of free markets will reject climate change. And in so doing, when you ask them, well, if you don't think this is happening, why do you think all the scientists are agreeing? Then they will deploy this conspiratorial rhetoric as a way of justifying to themselves why they don't believe it. This is one way that conspiracy theories are dangerous. They give ammunition to climate change deniers, and this has been influential in hindering efforts to combat global warming. And it is used as a rhetorical device very effectively because it gets you off the hook. One of the wonderful things about conspiracy theories from the point of view of the people spreading it is that they'll explain anything. Once you think there is a conspiracy, it doesn't matter what the contrary evidence is because that evidence is always going to be part of the conspiracy to keep you from finding out the truth. In other research, psychologists have looked at what happens when people are asked to read conspiracy theories about climate change. They've found it influences how those people respond to this incredibly important issue. Daniel Jolly, senior lecturer in psychology from Northumbria University in the UK, 
told me about one of the studies he ran. So what we find, for example, is that if you are exposed to the idea that climate change is a hoax, that it's been faked by scientists, the data, it makes you less likely to want to reduce your carbon footprint because you feel disillusioned, you feel perilous. If it's all a conspiracy, why would I bother trying to reduce my carbon footprint? Considering we are close to serious climate breakdown, with limited time to stop it, in many ways it doesn't get much more dangerous than this. Researchers like Daniel Jolly and Steve Lewandowski can sometimes find themselves on the receiving end of abuse from conspiracy theorists. Steve shared some of his experiences with me. These are from hardline, politically motivated conspiracy theorists. What they tend to do is they tend to focus on individual researchers who are new on the scene and who publish something that is inconvenient or challenging to those communities. And so when I published my first paper on conspiracy theorizing and climate denial, the response was pretty intense in terms of social media, in terms of complaints to my university, attempts to bully the journal and the editor and the publisher and the American Psychological Society, and so on and so on. I mean, it was just a, a massive effort trying to suppress the paper because they didn't like it. Instead of using the conventional route, which is to write a rejoinder or a critique or to submit something for publication that is analyzing the presumed problems in the paper. And that is very common. I mean, this happens over and over again whenever an inconvenient paper appears. Steve says it happened to him quite recently in relation to a paper he co-published, which outlined how climate denial blogs distort the science around polar bears. polar bears are relevant only because they've become this sort of iconic species that is threatened by climate change. You know, we've all seen the drowning polar bear on an iceberg that's melting. And of course, they are threatened. You know, the scientific evidence for that is pretty overwhelming. And no one who works on polar bears thinks that they're in good shape. But of course, that doesn't keep deniers from pushing back against that. And what we showed in the paper is how that was focused on just a number of blogs, but not supported by any scientific evidence. And the people who write that blog, one person in particular, took exception to that and then mounted this campaign against the paper by approaching the publisher, by making freedom of information requests, which of course is a favored tool of climate denial. And uh, it was a complete fishing expedition. Steve is pretty resilient, and he says the climate change denial lobby has for the most part given up on targeting him, because they've realized they can't bully him into submission. But this kind of abuse can be trying for researchers. It's just so tedious and boring and counterproductive and a waste of time. And to be confronted with this all the time over and over again is just draining, not because it'll have any consequences on me ultimately, but because it chews up time and it is just tedious. He knows lots of researchers who have been targeted and quit as a result, though. They say, well, I don't want anything to do with this. I've got better things to do in life. 
And uh, so in that sense, it's very effective. I know people who've been driven out of academia or certainly out of certain research areas because of the constant white noise and harassment from what's effectively cranks. Conspiracy theories are also at the center of a number of extremist movements. My name is uh, Eriko Bergman. I'm a professor of politics at the Bivrost University in Iceland. I mainly research populism, conspiracy theory and nationalism. Eriko has written a book called Conspiracy and Populism, The Politics of Misinformation. It's all about the recent proliferation of conspiracy theories and how right-wing extremists are particularly effective at using conspiracy theories to gain supporters and to advance their political causes. Conspiracy theories obviously have been around for a long time and uh, so has populism. But recently the two have also been caught up in the avalanche of fake news and culminating into something which we could call the politics of misinformation. Arika says populist politicians have capitalized on the rise in prominence of conspiracy theories in recent years. We had grown used to studying uh, conspiracy theories as something on the fringes upheld by discredited figures in the public discourse that weren't taken seriously. The same applies to populists. And what they have done is that they have actively, and now from the position of power, from the position of the mainstream, applied false information, bogus tales, conspiracy theories to advance their own politics. Populist politicians don't need to believe in these conspiracy theories themselves. They don't even need to convince other people to fully believe them. Arika says their main aim is to spread fear, and this is effective in rallying support. There are hosts of conspiracy theories that are thrown out there, but the big one, the one that populists have been able to rise on recently and come into position of power in many countries, is the idea of Great Replacement. We touched on the Great Replacement conspiracy theory in our last episode, on how conspiracy theories spread on message board websites like Reddit and 4chan. It takes a different shape in Europe to North America, but in both places it's underpinned by a fear of non-white people taking over. In Europe, the idea of Eurabia is the notion that actors in the Middle East are actively plotting to take over Europe and that they are sending to Europe, in this regard, flocks of their own nationals, people of their own faith, Muslims, from the Middle East and North Africa uh, to the West. And that they are, and this is the vital part of the conspiracy theory for political purposes, is the idea that they are aided with domestic collaborators, traitors of the people who are covertly working alongside the conspirators to turn the West into a Muslim society, into an Islamist order. Those are often mainstream politicians, quite often social democrats, that are seen 
to be these actors who are covertly plotting with the external threat. Populist politicians will not often promote this conspiracy theory explicitly. They don't have to. They are clever at playing upon these ideas that are already circulating and stoking what may well be the legitimate fears people have of immigration or society changing. Many populist politicians are also very skillful in sort of operating in the grey zone there because part of this notion can be credible concern of societies being changed through mass migration. That, of course, is not in itself a conspiracy theory. But when alluding to hidden actors being plotting to turn Europe away from its Christian heritage towards becoming a a Muslim society and being aided by domestic elites that are betraying the public, then you have entered the realm of full-fledged conspiracy theories. But other politicians are more explicit. For example, in the Netherlands, Geert Wilders, he, he relentlessly alludes to this idea of great replacement. And he even wrote it fully out on Twitter once that our society is being replaced and linked to a video showing areas of Amsterdam dominated by Muslim people. His words and then spread by the mainstream media that picks up his words. They might not concur with what they are reporting, but they are reporting this idea of the Great Replacement as a credible, legitimate voice of a prominent politician in the Netherlands. And this happens over and over again. The Brexit debate in the UK was also filled with references to the Great Replacement Theory. The fear of Turkey's membership of the EU was reported by the mainstream media in the UK as a legitimate input into the Brexit debate, even though the fact was pretty clear that the UK had done a veto on the issue. And the same had to do with the refugee crisis, which was irrespective of EU membership of the UK, it was still reported in the way that it was put forward by the politicians at the time. But just how dangerous is all of this? The real danger, Eirika says, is when these threats of invasion are taken literally by people who then feel the need to take up arms and act. So this relationship between populist politicians spreading conspiracy theories and fake information and then how it is received by more, shall we say, unstable actors in society, that relationship is very precarious. And of course, a politician uh, raising concerns over his or her notions of the great replacement theory can't be held directly responsible for violent actions of uh, quite simply mad people sometimes. But the relationship is still there. 
Erika points to the terrorist attack by Anders Bering Breivik in Norway in 2011. A grisly chronology is emerging from Norway after what appears to have been an elaborate and meticulously planned mass killing. The one suspect arrested is reported to have already admitted responsibility for the twin attacks. Breivik set off a bomb in Oslo that killed eight people and then shot and killed 69 boys and girls at a summer camp for young socialists. He published a manifesto behind this action and it quite literally describes his fears of the Great Replacement. And there in his own manifesto, the words of many politicians over the previous decades warning against Eurapia warning against the Great Replacement filters through there completely. Here you have the idea of Norway being turned into a Muslim society and that the conspirators who are turning Norway into an Islamist state are being aided by uh, the Norwegian Labour Party. And therefore, his attack on the youth movement of the Labour Party he saw that as being a defensive act of a Norwegian patriot protecting his country against these evildoers. You see a similar story with the murder of British Member of Parliament Joe Cox in the build-up to the UK's Brexit referendum in 2016. Thomas Mayer, a white supremacist, has been found guilty of murdering British MP and mother of two Joe Cox. The 41-year-old Labour politician was shot three times and repeatedly stabbed in her constituency in Northern England, a week ahead of the UK's in-out referendum on EU membership. Cox was killed by an extreme right-wing terrorist called Thomas Mayer, who was opposed to immigration and opposed to Britain's membership of the EU. He viewed her as being one of these traitors of the British people, selling the British peoples into the hands of the evil stewards who were replacing the British population with a Muslim population. The exact same idea was behind the terrorist attack in New Zealand, in Christchurch, in the attacks in El Paso recently, and many, many other similar attacks. The role that conspiracy theories have to play in this violence is not clear-cut. But there's definitely a relationship there. And it certainly doesn't help that so much of the language used in conspiracy theories invokes the existence of traitors in our midst and talks in grandiose terms of good versus evil. Steve Lewandowski says that violent extremists and hardline conspiracy theorists share a lot of the same psychological traits. So there's lots to learn from the world of counter-extremism about talking to conspiracy theorists. In fact, there is probably no radical extremist movement in the world that is not also involving a conspiracy. I mean, most right-wing extremist organizations are based on all sorts of conspiracies. That is just part and parcel of extremism. So I think de-radicalization of extremists is, is a good model for how to assist people who want to be assisted to come out of these conspiratorial rabbit holes. A big similarity is in the approach that both conspiracy theorists and extremists have to evidence. It's self-sealing. So when they are presented with any evidence against what they think, this then gets used as evidence of the conspiracy afoot. If you feel that, you know, the government is out to destroy white people, 
then whatever the government is doing will be seen as, as evidence to confirm that hypothesis, even if in actual fact that evidence does not withstand scrutiny in, a, in an independent assessment. Research shows that if you bombard a conspiracy theorist with evidence that counters their beliefs, it just gets their backs up and can make them even more hardline in what they believe. So breaking people out of this bubble is very difficult. I asked Steve what techniques were effective. In de-radicalization research, we know that messages from former members of the same group can be extremely effective. So people who have left cults or extremist organizations or who have disbelieved conspiracy theories and who can then talk about their journey, how they got to that and why it was that they gave up those beliefs. Building a rapport with anyone you're trying to pull out of the rabbit hole is also crucial. They've got to trust you. The other thing that can be helpful is that if you have the time to establish a rapport with a person like that, you can appeal to their skepticism, which is what most conspiracy theorists will tell you. They will say, oh, I'm a skeptic. I do not believe official accounts. And, and that's absolutely true. I mean, by definition, almost, you, you will be skeptical of any official account if you believe in a conspiracy theory instead. Well, you can appeal to that skepticism and just point out, you know, why don't you also apply that skepticism to your own views? Well, shall we do that together? Maybe try that out and see how, how you go with your skepticism if you apply it to your own views. And again, that sort of uh, slow guided processing of encouraging people to be skeptical, but not just one sided applied to both sides to their own views as well. That has also been shown to be successful. But of course, all of that involves, you know, a long-term communication effort and a personal rapport. Yeah, because it seems going off the, the hardliners is going to take a lot of time and effort. Should you actually just focus on the people who are not yet? Correct. I, I, I would definitely recommend that. I think the most important thing to do in terms of protecting the public is, first of all, talk to the general public, explain to them where these theories come from, explain to them ahead of time before they're exposed to it, if at all possible, that they're flawed, that they have negative consequences on society if they spread, and so on. This is something that Karen Douglas, psychology professor at the University of Kent in the UK, has researched. She told me about a study she ran on countering the spread of anti-vaccination conspiracy theories. So we tried to test an intervention fairly small scale, just to sort of try to get an idea of when you might be able to change people's conspiracy belief. And it actually turned out that it was quite difficult to do that. And the only success that we had in doing this was what we called an inoculation procedure. So that is you present people with the correct or official, you know, most likely scientific correct information before they're exposed to the conspiracy theory, then, then that theory doesn't have as much impact on people's attitudes. Whereas if you do it the other way around and you present people with the conspiracy theory and then the correct information, the conspiracy belief tends to stay there. Another researcher I spoke to who studied the anti-vaccination movement 
is Ella Dronskevich, a social anthropologist at Maynooth University in Ireland. She says there are lots of different reasons why people may be opposed to vaccinations. And the reasons can differ depending on the type of vaccines, and they can vary from country to country. So opting out for the HPV vaccine in Romania might be different from opting out from the HPV vaccine in Ireland and different from opting out from the MMR vaccine. And also for another reason, we will opt out from the flu vaccine program. So this is something I'm interested in, that there is this one bucket that we throw all people who are somewhere on the spectrum of vaccine hesitancy, and we call them anti-vaxxers, while they have very different reasons and motivations why they will opt out at some point of their life. Ella ran a big study into the attitudes towards the HPV vaccine in Ireland. The vaccine prevents human papillomavirus, or HPV, which can cause a number of different cancers, but it's most commonly associated with cervical cancer in women. The vaccine was introduced in Ireland in 2010 for girls around the age of 11. It's offered as part of the school vaccination program, and uptake for the vaccine started off pretty high at 82%. This rose to above 85% in 2014. But then there was a 30% drop to around 50% uptake in 2016. So a lot of medical professionals, they blame this drop on a group of parents who identify themselves as a regret group. And the regret group is a group of parents who were pro-vaccination, who did vaccinate their daughters, and then experienced some sort of health issues, and they believe that those health issues are caused by vaccinations. And they went public with their concerns, they were very vocal about their concerns, and indeed the growth of that group correlates with the drop in the vaccination uptake. So the Irish Health Service, the HSE, blamed this regret group, characterising them as a bunch of anti-vaxxers who were responsible for the drop in vaccination rates. But Ella was interested in finding out why so many people were so quick to believe this group, even though all the scientific evidence shows the vaccine to be totally safe. I think what is the most important is to pay attention to what those specific groups are actually saying. So according to my health professional informants, what they heard was fake news, rumors, non-scientific messages which concern vaccines. So for people in scientific communities, anti-vaxxers are basically talking mostly about spreading rumors about bad science. And what I found out is that, yes, it's correct. A lot of information from regret parents concerns vaccination safety and concerns research on vaccines. But a lot of their messages also concerns experiences with health professionals, the experience of health uh, institutions in Ireland. And this is something that is really, really important for them. So is it like an issue of trust? It is definitely an issue of trust towards health institutions, towards health professionals, and it's also an issue of positive or negative relationship between uh, doctors and patients and Irish citizens who are clients of those medical services. And I think this is an issue that Irish public uh, was receptive to, not so much the big pharma conspiracy theories, 
but the stories of mistrust and being failed by the Irish health system. If you've got a long history of feeling let down by a particular system, it makes for fertile ground to believe any rumours that start up about it. This is similar to what we heard in part one of the series, about the conspiracy theories many African Americans believe relating to the US healthcare system. For Irish women, their mistrust of the system relates to the country having one of the most repressive reproductive regimes in Europe, until very recently. We often think that what was going on in Ireland was simply abortion ban, right? But when you have such a rigorous abortion ban, it impacts all health services for women. It impacts the way maternity care is provided. It impacts the way sexual health is taken care of. So that's one of the examples of the abuses of Irish healthcare system towards Irish women in Ireland. Luckily, that's all gone now and we had our repeal, so we can think of it as something of the past. But that was up until 2018. So women were living in this actual environment. There is also a strong collective memory of institutions called Maudlin Laundries. These were asylums that women who had children out of wedlock got sent to. They were sent to those houses to be reformed. They were basically imprisoned and kept there. And those institutions, Madeleine Laundries, those mother and baby homes where women were sent, um, these were talked about as, you know, places for betterment, as places for providing care for those women, where they were basically imprisoning them and mistreating them. And um, women also died there. So. You can see when people grew up in this environment and it's a small island, everybody knows each other and people have those stories in their families. So when the rumor comes, people will not just believe science. Knowledge is more than science and facts. Knowledge is also about relationships and memories and emotions and feelings. So it's not that people necessarily believed conspiracy theories about the HPV vaccine. Instead, they were quick to mistrust the state when it came to an issue of women's reproductive health. What made things worse, Ella says, is that these concerns were often not met with sympathy from doctors. All the stories I'm collecting, basically, are the stories of families who experience health difficulties and they go to the doctors, uh, they come in with questions thinking, I think it's because of the vaccine. And the moment they verbalize that concern, they're being ridiculed, dismissed, and they often are being uh, directed towards mental health services. But when parents brought their questions to other skeptics, they found a community that was ready to listen to them. Ella told me about one woman she met at an event organised by parents concerned with the safety of the HPV vaccine. And we were sitting and she at some point told me, you know, I don't really think that what happened to my daughter, that her illness is caused by vaccine. She was smart enough to recognise that there was too much time passed between vaccine given and the illness developing. But she said that she was trying everything with all doctors. She had tons of appointments and she felt that 
Irish medical system failed her, that there is no one interested in helping her with addressing their issues, their family concerns and their family difficult situation because those illnesses affect whole families, not just one person, right? So she ran out of options. And that was the only place where she felt no one ridiculed her, no one was gaslighting her, no one was telling her, oh, it's just in your head, get over it. The Irish health system soon realised it had a serious problem on its hands. And it's actually been pretty successful at bringing HPV vaccination rates back up. In 2019, 70% of 11-year-old girls had the vaccine. They realized that debunking myths about vaccines does not work anymore. They realized that we have to find new ways of fixing this issue. And they looked for more progressive ways of dealing with that problem. And one of those ways is through regaining the trust. So they thought of new campaigns, how to rebuild the trust in vaccinations. And I think they were quite effective because they used storytelling, and storytelling is something that is very powerful in Ireland. Actually, they mimicked the tactics of the regret group. The regret group parents had told emotional stories of how their daughters got ill after getting the HPV vaccine. In a parallel way, health professionals used stories of healthy girls who took vaccine and didn't experience any damage, who were telling stories of themselves, of being happy, healthy, and thriving in a community and so giving a face of individuals, of, of other women who were successfully vaccinated. The Irish Health Service also ran campaigns with women who hadn't got the vaccine and then got cancer. So there was one woman, Laura Brennan, who suffered cervical cancer and who came to the HSC and volunteered and said, I don't want that to happen to any other women. I'm Laura, I'm 25 and I'm from Clare. I think that this cancer, the cervical cancer, is such a devastating story because it's a cancer which mostly affects very young women. At 24, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer stage 2B. I was quite optimistic as there was something that could be done. With chemo and radiation, there was a good chance that it could be cured. Two months later, it was back, and things are different this time. There is no treatment that will cure my cancer. There is only treatment that will prolong my life. And she went to HSC and she said, I want to tell my story, and I want to advocate for the HPV vaccine so that what happened to me will not happen to others. If anything good comes out of this, I would hope parents would get their daughters vaccinated. The vaccine saves lives. It could have saved mine. Like the other experts I've spoken to, Ella says that if you dismiss someone as a conspiracy theorist or throw scientific facts at them, this tends to just push them away from you. Because conspiracy theories work as this kind of pseudoscience where people look for uh, new evidence, new facts, and they constantly do research just like we do. So for every argument you will give them, they will find few others that for them makes sense. So when we focus on facts about vaccines, we will engage in a constant battle about what are the facts about vaccines. It will be a struggle of constant debating and fighting and arguments. But I think if we stop obsessing about what people know about vaccines, if we stop obsessing about knowledge deficiency 
And we realized that people opt out of immunization programs also because of the trust deficiency, because of changing patient-doctor relationship, then we will have to start fixing those other things. And then conspiratorial beliefs will not be that important. As we've heard time and again in this series, Conspiracy theories are powerful when they play on people's existing fears and beliefs. They reflect deeper concerns going on in society. The extent that this makes them dangerous or not, I'll leave for you to decide. For more perspectives on conspiracy theories, check out theconversation.com. And for a much more detailed guide to dealing with misinformation and engaging with conspiracy theorists, Steve Lewandowski, who was on this podcast, has written a conspiracy theory handbook, which is free to read on the website climatechangecommunication.org forward slash conspiracy theory handbook. This was meant to be the final episode of our five part series on conspiracy theories. But the coronavirus pandemic that has swept the world in the last few months has compelled us to do a bonus episode specifically on coronavirus conspiracy theories. If you've listened to the whole series so far, you'll not be surprised to hear that the crisis has spawned a bunch of conspiracy theories, and many of them will sound very familiar. So look out for this bonus episode that will land next week on theconversation.com or subscribe to The Ant Hill wherever you get your podcasts from. The Ant Hill is produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. The sound design is by Eloise Stevens, with original music by Nita Sahl. Thanks to all the researchers who spoke to us for this episode and the series so far. Special thanks to Claire Birchall, Peter Knight and Michael Butter, who've helped bring this podcast into being. Also to the Cost Action Compact for funding it. Lastly, thanks to you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>